Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening. Before we begin today, I'd like to extend to you, the listener, my congratulations. If you're listening to this, then presumably you've made it to the end of our quite prolonged series on the Haitian Revolution. This episode will be the final one in a series of nine. It's been a long journey, but it's finally time for it to come to an end. Also, before we begin, I'd just like to issue another gentle reminder that you can support the show via either Patreon or through the eBay store. Anyway, without further ado, let's begin. In the last episode of our series on the Haitian Revolution, we covered the opening stages of the Leclerc Expedition. In early 1801, First Consul of the French Republic Napoleon Bonaparte made the fateful decision to send an army to the colony of Saint-Domingue in order to dislodge Toussaint Louverture from power and to restore the authority of France on the island. Napoleon appointed his own brother-in-law, General Charles Leclerc, at the head of this expedition, which he anticipated would be concluded rather quickly. To Leclerc, Napoleon gave the following instructions. Leclerc's objective was to break Toussaint's power base by disarming, arresting, and deporting his officers. Once that had been accomplished, Leclerc was then to disarm the general populace to restore order in the country. Crucially, Napoleon's initial instructions did not include an order for Leclerc to reinstitute slavery in Saint-Domingue. The 30,000 troops of the expedition arrived at Saint-Domingue in February of 1801. As soon as he spotted the sails of the French ships off the coast, Toussaint, who had henceforth remained loyal to the French Republic, immediately recognized what was happening. He gave orders to his generals to engage in a scorched earth campaign, and he retreated with his men into the formidable mountains of Saint-Domingue's interior. Toussaint's army, now deemed rebels by the French authorities, waged a guerrilla campaign against the French, attacking and retreating sporadically and avoiding open battle. The only conventional battle, at least by European standards, took place at crete a a strategic fort which controlled the passages into the mountains where Toussaint and his men were hiding. Toussaint entrusted Jean-Jacques Dessalines with the defense, and while he was able to inflict severe casualties on the French, he was eventually forced to retreat due to lack of supplies. Toussaint's overall strategy was to put up a fight until the summer came, because with summer came the dreaded yellow fever that was the bane of colonial armies. But before that time, Toussaint's ranks saw a series of defections by high-level officers. By mid-April 1801, Toussaint had been compelled to surrender to Leclerc, albeit on the condition that he and his officers be allowed to retain their ranks in the French army, and that he be allowed to retire to one of his plantations in the country. Leclerc accepted these conditions and granted Toussaint his retirement, but he felt that, so long as Toussaint remained in the colony, public order was in danger. So he conspired to have Toussaint arrested and deported only a month later. In June 1801, Toussaint, along with his wife and children, was rounded up by French authorities and whisked away to Le Cap, whereupon he was hurriedly loaded onto a ship awaiting in the harbor. As he was boarding the ship and took one last look out at his native Saint-Domingue, Toussaint uttered the famous quote, In overthrowing me, you have cut down in Saint-Domingue only the trunk of the tree of liberty. It will grow back from the roots, because they are deep and they are numerous. End quote. Even after he was defeated and captured, Leclerc still feared Toussaint. He wrote to Napoleon, quote, Toussaint must not be free. He should be imprisoned in the interior of the Republic. May he never see Saint-Domingue again. You cannot hold Toussaint far enough from the ocean, or put him in a prison that is too strong. End quote. 
At his brother-in-law's suggestion, Napoleon had Toussaint imprisoned at Fort de Joux, near the French-Swiss border. Napoleon had decided that, instead of executing Toussaint, he would simply kill him via mistreatment. The site of his captivity was specifically chosen to have deleterious effects on his health. At an altitude of 3,000 feet, and with temperatures regularly going below freezing, the climate at Fort de Joux was unsuitable to a man like Toussaint, who had spent his entire life in tropical climates. He was 57 years old at the time, and his health began to deteriorate. His captors did everything in their power to speed along his demise, including cutting back his rations, limiting the amount of firewood he was allowed, and forcing him to wear nothing but prisoner's rags. Having arrived there in August, Toussaint remained in relatively decent health until the winter set in. He took this time to write. He wrote an autobiography, which I have been unable to find the text of, as well as a series of letters to Napoleon, attempting to justify his actions and asking for mercy. One such letter reads, quote, During the 32-day crossing, I had to endure not only the greatest fatigue, but also such indignities as would be impossible to imagine without having witnessed them. Even my wife and children endured a treatment that their sex and their age should have spared them from. Where are the results of the promises made to me by General Leclerc, who gave me his word of honor, as well as the protection of the French government? Surely, I owe this treatment to my color. But did my color ever prevent me from serving my country with such zeal and fidelity? Does the color of my body diminish my honor and my courage? Even if I were a criminal, and there were government orders to arrest me, was it necessary to use a hundred riflemen to snatch my wife and children from their estate without regard or respect for their age and their sex? Was it necessary to loot and ransack our property? General Leclerc should be honest. Did he fear having a rival? I would compare his conduct to that of the Roman Senate, which pursued Hannibal even into his retirement. Everyone who has known me will do me justice. I have been a slave, I admit it, but I never received as much as a reproach from my masters. In Saint-Domingue, I never neglected anything for the island's well-being. If I wanted to list all the services I rendered to the government in all the wars, it would take several volumes. And to repay me for these services, I was arbitrarily arrested like a common criminal, tied up, and taken aboard a ship without regard for my rank or what I have achieved. It is from the depths of this prison that I have recourse to the justice and magnanimity of the First Consul. He is too generous and too good a general to leave an old soldier covered in wounds in the service of his country without at least giving him the satisfaction of a trial. First Consul, father of all soldiers, honest judge, defender of the innocent, render judgment upon my fate. My wound is very deep. Apply the healing remedy, for you are a doctor. I am counting entirely on your justice and equity." End quote. What comes across in this and other letters written by Toussaint at the time is a sense of desperation. Toussaint's captors were trying to break him, in both body and in spirit, and while they succeeded in the former, they could not succeed in the latter. To the very end, Toussaint continued to see himself as a loyal subject of the French Republic, while at the same time he remained steadfast in his belief that for the French to restore slavery on Saint-Domingue was an impossible task. He had the utmost faith in his people to defend what was theirs by right. As time went on and winter set in, Toussaint's health declined steadily. His jailers refused to allow him medical treatment, and Toussaint would reportedly slip in and out of a comatose state in his final months. Finally, on the morning of April 8, 1803, his jailers opened his cell to find Toussaint Louverture, the great general, 
the black Spartacus in the first consul of Saint-Domingue, dead in his chair. An autopsy suggested that the cause of death was a combination of apoplexy and pneumonia, although it is certain that other factors, such as malnutrition and exhaustion, contributed to his death. Toussaint Louverture was then buried in an unmarked plot just outside of the fort, an undignified end for a giant of the revolutionary era. Toussaint Louverture lived an incredible life, and left behind an incredible legacy. He was a remarkably adept leader, and while I don't typically indulge in so-called great man history, I believe that without Toussaint's leadership, the revolution very well could have taken a different course. At the end of his life, Toussaint could, not unreasonably, boast about having led his people from the indignities of slavery into freedom. But Toussaint's historical significance lies not only in the actions that he took in life, but the legacy that he left behind. He is, without a doubt, the founding father of the Haitian nation. Even though he did not live to see its official foundation, his actions undoubtedly laid the groundwork for the eventual victory of the revolutionaries in Saint-Domingue. His figure looms as large in the history of Haiti as George Washington's in that of the United States. Moreover, Toussaint, or rather the abstract ideal of Toussaint, became an inspiration to all who longed for freedom from oppression, not only in Haiti, but across the world. Slaves across the New World spoke of Papa Toussaint, and his actions inspired many others to rebel against the injustices of slavery, most notably American revolutionary John Brown. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, General Leclerc was finding himself in an increasingly desperate position. He believed that the arrest and deportation of Toussaint would break the spirit of the insurgents, but quite the opposite thing occurred. News of Leclerc's betrayal of Toussaint sparked another fiercer, and more widespread rash of insurrections across the colony. With yellow fever beginning to take its toll on the French ranks, Leclerc was forced to turn to Toussaint's former generals to help him quell the insurrections. Thus, Napoleon's order to, quote, not leave a single epaulette on the shoulder of a black on the island, end quote, was becoming nearly impossible to carry out. Around this time, Leclerc moved to make good on another one of Napoleon's orders, the disarmament of the general population. This, too, backfired spectacularly, prompting a whole new series of rebellions. Then, in July of 1802, news reached Saint-Domingue of the First Consul's decision to once again legalize the slave trade. He had also given permission to the governors of Saint-Domingue and of Guadeloupe to reinstate slavery at their discretion, a decision that the governor of Guadeloupe, General Richepons, acted on immediately. This news, combined with the disarmament campaign, had convinced nearly everyone in the colony that the true intention of the French was to re-establish slavery. Yet even more insurrections followed, as well as mass defections by the French's native auxiliary troops. Leclerc wrote frantically to Napoleon, begging him for soldiers to reinforce his steadily depleting ranks. Of the 30,000 troops Leclerc arrived with in February, he had only about 10,000 left, and of those, maybe 2,000 were fit for active service. For the time being, however, Toussaint's former generals and their most loyal soldiers remained in the service of the French, doing their best to keep the war effort afloat. Leclerc knew that their loyalty was suspect, that they were all waiting for the right moment to break ranks and turn against the French, but, so long as the majority of them remained in the French camp, none dared make a move without reassurances from the others that they would follow suit. Dessalines made contact with Alexandre Petion, a mixed-race general who had opposed him at Credat Pirot. The two made a secret pact that, in the event that one of them made the decision to turn against France, the other would do the same. 
Three months passed before their plan was put into action. Then, finally, on October 11th, Pétion made his move. He, with 3,000 troops, captured a series of fortifications surrounding Le Cap, and compelled the 300 French soldiers garrisoning them to surrender. Leclerc, who had long suspected Dessalines of harboring traitorous views, immediately sent soldiers to arrest the general, who was at breakfast with a local priest at the time. Luckily, Dessalines was informed of the developments near Le Cap and his imminent arrest by a sympathetic house servant. Dessalines was able to escape the building in the nick of time. He mounted his horse and rode it to the town of Gonaïves, all along the way firing his pistol wildly into the air and shouting calls to arms at any cultivators that he came across. Elsewhere, news of Pétion and Dessalines' rebellion incited the other commanders to do likewise. Henri Christophe hesitated for a few days, but eventually came around and raised the flag of rebellion himself. These defections pushed Leclerc to the edge. He was now openly proposing what he called a war of extermination. He wrote to Napoleon, quote, Here is my opinion on this country. We must destroy all the blacks of the mountains, men and women, and spare only children under 12 years of age. We must destroy half of those in the plains, and not leave a single colored person in the colony who has ever worn an epaulette. End quote. The volume and savagery of summary executions of blacks increased by several fold. Not wishing to waste their precious ammunition, the French, instead of the usual execution by firing squad, resorted to binding the limbs of those that they captured and tossing them into the ocean. Immediately upon receiving word of Pétion's rebellion, Leclerc ordered the arrest of all black soldiers who remained in the service of France. Even General Maurepas, who did not, in fact, rebel, was killed along with his entire family. Leclerc would hardly have enough time to put his planned war of extermination into action. He fell ill with yellow fever and died on November 2nd, 1803. Towards the end, the dying general expressed some feelings of regret at his actions. One of his last letters to his brother-in-law reads, in part, quote, Since I have been here, I have seen only the spectacle of fires, insurrections, murders, of the dead and the dying. My soul is withered, and no joyful thought can ever make me forget these horrific scenes. End quote. Leclerc was succeeded as commander of the Saint-Domingue expedition by one Donatien-Marie-Joseph de Vimeur, Vicomte de Rochambeau. If this name sounds vaguely familiar to you, it is because this Rochambeau was the son of the Vicomte de Rochambeau who played a decisive role in aiding the Americans at the Siege of Yorktown during the American Revolutionary War. General Rochambeau was possessed of a cruel streak that made Leclerc seem moderate in comparison. One of his first acts as commander of the expedition was to order 1,500 attack dogs from nearby Cuba to be used as weapons against the insurgents. This was a grim echo of the island's earlier history when the Spanish had used such dogs against the indigenous Taino people to horrifying effect. At an exhibition held with the intention of boosting morale, Rochambeau had the dogs attacked a chained-up black prisoner. When the dogs proved uninterested in attacking the man, Rochambeau took it upon himself to slice open the stomach of the unfortunate man with his sword, and at the sight of blood, the dogs went into a frenzy and tore him to shreds, to the applause of the soldiers assembled there. Under Rochambeau's command, captive blacks, whether they were insurgents or civilians, and the line there was becoming increasingly blurred, were burned alive, stuffed into sacks and drowned, hung, crucified, shot after being made to dig their own graves, and even suffocated by toxic fumes in the holds of ships, 
a sort of pre-modern version of a gas chamber. As C.L.R. James summed it up, quote, while Leclerc had proposed a war of extermination, Rochambeau actually waged it, end quote. Dessalines was not one to idly bear witness to such atrocities. When he first entered into rebellion against the French, he wrote in a letter to a comrade, quote, The people of Saint-Domingue have come to clearly see the intention of Leclerc's mission, which is openly manifested by the officers serving under him, who fiercely massacre any and all blacks and mulattoes. I cannot watch such atrocities with a serene eye. End quote. Dessalines retaliated for Rochambeau's atrocities in kind. When Rochambeau had 500 or so black prisoners massacred in one day, Dessalines responded by having 500 white prisoners hung outside La Cap, leaving their bodies to rot on the gallows for the inhabitants of the city to see. One French officer described the sorts of punishments that the French captives were subjected to under Dessalines' orders. Quote, the least of the tortures our prisoners have to endure is to be grilled or barbecued, sawn between two planks, have their eyes torn out with a bail hook, and then be slashed with a cutlass and hauled up by the armpits to expire under the blows of a cudgel, or to be given the burning ankle torture or others to be made to reveal information. In short, every violence that the most refined cruelty could invent. The fiercest days of combat in Europe do not expose the soldier to the suffering that the smallest skirmish or ambush here can lead to. End quote. Indeed, Rochambeau's campaign of terror proved to be even more counterproductive than that of his predecessor, as it further galvanized resistance against the French. Even the free people of color in the southern province, who had henceforth remained loyal to France, were appalled by the unmitigated violence, and threw in their lot with the rebels. Shortly before his death, Leclerc remarked on the fanaticism of the rebels, who preferred death to bondage. C.L.R. James reported a few anecdotes about condemned black prisoners facing their deaths, with a certain stoicism that would rival even some of the greatest martyrs of antiquity. One 17-year-old convict, condemned to be burned alive at the stake, reportedly called out to the crowd in attendance, quote, You do not know how to die. See now how to die. End quote after which point he withstood the flames without uttering a single cry. And in another instance, a black officer, condemned to hang alongside his wife, hesitated briefly, for which his wife scolded him, saying that he did not know how sweet it was to die for liberty. She then, refusing to die at the hands of the executioner, grabbed hold of the rope and hung herself. Another woman who was to hang alongside her daughters gave them one last word of encouragement, quote, "'Be glad that you will never be the mothers of slaves.'" End quote. In fact, the French soldiers were far more terrified of the torches that they were sure to face in the hands of the insurgents than the insurgents were of the gallows or the firing squad. Morale quickly began to plummet among Rochambeau's remaining ranks. No doubt many began to wonder if this was all worth it, if this was even a just cause to begin with. One group within the French army that grappled with such ethical questions was the Polish Legion. This was a military unit comprised entirely of ethnic Poles, who had joined the French army in the hopes that Napoleon would support their bid for national independence in Europe. Many of these Polish soldiers did not understand what it was they were doing in the Caribbean in the first place, supporting France's colonial ambitions. Moreover, some had even grown sympathetic to the rebels' cause. They saw their own national ambitions mirrored in the rebel struggle for an independent Saint-Domingue. The exact number of Polish soldiers who actually took the step to defect to the rebel cause is hard to know for certain. Some sources claim that entire units of Polish soldiers defected, while others claim the number was somewhere around 150. 
Reportedly, Dessalines managed to personally win over a group of 30 Polish grenadiers, and he subsequently took them on as his own personal bodyguards. By early 1803, Dessalines had managed to solidify his control over a massive coalition of over a hundred local rebel leaders and free men of color. This consolidated army was, from around this time, known as the Indigenous Army. In May of that year, in response to claims that the Indigenous Army was not, in fact, fighting for independence from France, Dessalines assembled a conference at the town of Arcae. Here, Dessalines sought to make a symbolic break with France. He took the tricolor flag of the French Republic, the red, white, and blue colors of which had, in the context of Saint-Domingue, taken on the meaning of unity between the races, blue representing the blacks, white representing the whites, and the red representing those of mixed racial descent. With dramatic flair, Dessalines tore the white from the tricolor, and had his goddaughter sew the red and blue segments back together, thereby creating the predecessor of the current flag of Haiti. Where previously the flag had been emblazoned with the revolutionary slogan of liberty, equality, and fraternity, Dessalines had the new flag emblazoned with a new slogan, liberty or death. On May 18th, the last day of the conference at Arcae, a major political development in Europe was to change the entire geopolitical situation in Saint-Domingue. Great Britain had declared war on the French Republic. This was excellent news for Dessalines and the indigenous army. The Leclerc expedition was only able to materialize thanks to Britain's acquiescence. Now that Britain and France were at war once more, the superior British navy would ensure that Rochambeau could no longer import fresh troops from Europe to bolster his ranks. This gave the indigenous army the opportunity that they had been waiting for. On all fronts, the French desperately attempted to fight off the vicious renewed offenses of the indigenous army, but it was little use. By the time that yellow fever season had reared its ugly head once more, the French were reduced to only a few strategic positions in the north. The final battle of the War of Haitian Independence took place on November 18, 1803, at a place called Veritier, just outside Le Cap. It was also located very close to the Breda Plantation, where the late Toussaint Louverture had spent the first part of his life. The French had entrenched themselves well, and they defended against wave after wave of attackers. At one point, as an officer named Francois Capois led a charge towards the French, a cannonball knocked him from his horse. Quickly recovering, Capois unsheathed his sword, raised it over his head, and shouted at his men to continue advancing. As he ran towards the enemy lines, Capois was struck in the shoulder by a gunshot, but this only halted his advance momentarily. Suddenly, the bewildered French defender ceased fire and began to applaud this man for his almost suicidal bravery. Rochambeau even dispatched a messenger to congratulate Capois. Quote, General Rochambeau sends his compliments to the general who has just covered himself with such glory. End quote. Soon the battle began again. Dessalines himself was not on the front lines. He was observing the action from a nearby hill, with his snuffbox in hand, watching as his soldiers made one last, desperate push to win their freedom. By nightfall, Rochambeau realized that all was lost, and he made the decision to evacuate Saint-Domingue entirely. Dessalines allowed Rochambeau and his men ten days to pack up and leave the country. On November 28th, the few French soldiers who remained, along with the remaining white residents of Le Cap, boarded ships that promptly sailed directly into the British blockade whereupon they were immediately captured. That day, Dessalines marched triumphantly into Le Cap, secure in the knowledge that he and his people would never again be slaves.
The independence of Saint-Domingue and the severing of all remaining ties with France was ratified in a constitution that Dessalines promulgated on January 1st, 1804. The first draft of this document was presented to Dessalines on the 29th of November, but he dismissed it as being too moderate. A new constitution was written over the course of the following month, which merits reading in its entirety. Quote, the commander-in-chief to the people of Haiti. Citizens, it is not enough to have expelled the barbarians who have bloodied our land for two centuries. It is not enough to have restrained the ever-evolving factions that one after another have mocked the scepter of liberty that France dangled before you. We must, with one last act of national authority, forever assure the empire of liberty in the country of our birth. We must take any hope of re-enslaving us away from the inhuman government that for so long kept us in the most humiliating torpor. In the end, we must live independent, or we must die. Independence or death. Let these sacred words unite us and be the signal of battle and of our reunion. Citizens, my countrymen, on this solemn day I have brought before you those courageous soldiers who, as liberty lay dying, gave, split the, spilled their blood to save it. These generals who have guided your efforts against tyranny have not yet done enough for your happiness, for the French name still haunts our land. Everything revives the memories of the cruelties of this barbarous people. Our laws, our habits, our towns, everything still carries the stamp of the French. Indeed, there are still French in our island, and you believe yourself free and independent of that republic which, it is true, has fought all the nations, but which has never managed to defeat those who wanted to be free. What victims of our own credulity and indulgence for fourteen years, defeated not by French armies, but by the pathetic eloquence of their agents' proclamations? When will we tire of breathing the same air that they breathe? What do we have in common with this nation of executioners? The difference between its cruelty and our patient moderation, its colors and ours, the great seas that separate us, our avenging climate, all of these tell us plainly that they are not our brothers, that they never will be, and that if they find refuge among us, they will plot again to trouble and divide us. Native citizen, men, women, girls, and children, let your gaze extend on all parts of this island. Look there for your spouses, your husbands, your brothers, and your sisters. Indeed, look there for your children, your suckling infants. What have they become? I shudder to say it. The prey of these vultures. Instead of these dear victims, your alarmed gaze will only see their assassins, these tigers still dripping with their blood, whose terrible presence indicts your lack of feeling and your guilty slowness in avenging them. What are you waiting for before appeasing their spirits? Remember that you had wanted your remains to rest next to those of your fathers after you defeated tyranny. Will you descend into their tombs without having avenged them first? No, for their bones would reject yours. And you, precious men, intrepid generals, who, without concern for your own pain, have revived liberty by shedding all your blood, know that you have done nothing if you do not give the nations a terrible but just example of the vengeance that must be wrought by a people proud to have recovered its liberty and jealous to maintain it. Let us frighten all those who would dare to try and take it from us again. Let us begin with the French. Let them tremble when they approach our coast, if not for the memory of the cruelties that they perpetrated here, then from the terrible resolution we will have made to put to death anyone born French, whose profane foot still soils the land of liberty. We have dared to be free. Let us be thus by ourselves and for ourselves. Let us imitate the grown child. 
His own weight breaks the boundary that has become an obstacle to him. What people fought for us, what people wanted to gather the fruits of our labor, and what dishonorable absurdity to conquer in order to be enslaved. Enslaved? Let us leave this description for the French, for they have conquered, but they are no longer free. Let us walk down another path. Let us imitate those who, extending their concern into the future, and dreading to leave an example of cowardice for posterity, preferred to be exterminated, rather than lose their place as one of the world's free people. Let us ensure, however, that a missionary spirit does not destroy our work. Let us allow our neighbors to breathe in peace. May they live quietly under the laws that they have made for themselves, and let us not, as revolutionary firebrands, declare ourselves the lawgivers of the Caribbean, nor let our glory consist in troubling the peace of the neighboring islands. Unlike that which we inhabit, theirs has not been drenched in the innocent blood of its inhabitants. They have no vengeance to claim from the authority that protects them. Fortunate to have never known the ideals that have destroyed us, they can only have good wishes for our prosperity. Peace to our neighbors, but let this be our cry. Anathema to the French name, eternal hatred of France. Natives of Haiti, my happy fate was to one day be the sentinel who would watch over the idol to which you sacrifice. I have watched, sometimes fighting alone, and, if I have been so fortunate as to return to your hands the sacred trust that you confided in me, know that it is now your task to preserve it. In fighting for liberty, I was working for my own happiness. Before consolidating it with laws that will guarantee your free individuality, your leaders, who I have assembled here, and I, owe you the final proof of our devotion. Generals and you, leaders, collected here close to me for the good of our land, the day has come that we must make our glory, our independence, internal. If there could exist among us a lukewarm heart, let him distance himself and tremble to take the oath which must unite us. Let us now vow to ourselves, to posterity and the entire universe, to forever renounce France, and to die rather than to live under its domination, to fight until our last breath for the independence of our country. And you, a people so long without good fortune, witness to the oath we take, remember that I counted on your constancy and your courage when I threw myself into the career of liberty to fight the despotism and tyranny which you struggled against for fourteen years. Remember that I sacrificed everything to rally to your defense, family, children, fortune, and now I am rich only with your liberty. My name has become a horror to all those who want slavery. Despots and tyrants curse the day that I was born. If you ever refused or grumbled while receiving those laws that the spirit guiding your fate dictates to me for your own good, you would deserve the fate of an ungrateful people. But I reject that awful idea. You will sustain the liberty that you cherish and support the leader who commands you. Therefore vow before me to live free and independent, and to prefer death to anything that will try to place you back in its chains. Swear, finally, to pursue the traitors and enemies of your independence forever. Done at the headquarters of Ghanaives, the first day of January 1804, the first year of independence. Today, the general-in-chief of the native army, accompanied by the generals of the army, assembled in order to take measures that will ensure the good of the country. After having told the assembled generals his true intentions, to assure forever a stable government for the natives of Haiti, the object of his greatest concern, which he has accomplished in a speech which declares to foreign powers the decision to make the country independent and to enjoy a liberty consecrated by the blood of the people of this island, and after having gathered their responses, 
has asked that each of the assembled generals take a vow to forever renounce France, to die rather than to live under its domination, and to fight for independence until their last breath. The generals, deeply moved by these sacred principles, after having voted their unanimous attachment to the declared project of independence, have sworn to all posterity, to the universe, to forever renounce France, and to die rather than to live under its domination. End quote. Crucially in this document was the adoption of the country's new name, Haiti. The name Haiti is derived from a native Taino word for the island, and was adopted by the nation's founders as a complete symbolic repudiation of European colonialism. Jean-Jacques Dessalines, having been successful in taking the reins of the revolutionary movement from Toussaint Louverture, naturally became the head of state for the newly independent nation of Haiti. He proclaimed himself governor for life, much as Toussaint had done, but before the year was out, he went even further and proclaimed himself emperor of Haiti. He was crowned as such on October 6, 1804. Shortly after the evacuation of Rochambeau, Dessalines made the fateful decision to finish what he had started. He ordered that all remaining white inhabitants of Haiti were to be killed. Contrary to popular belief, the 1804 massacre of the whites was not an organic result of Haitian victory in the War of Independence. It was the deliberate policy of Dessalines, and, as such, many were hesitant to carry out these orders. So Dessalines embarked on a tour of his country to ensure that his orders were complied with. When arriving in a town, he would give a speech to the assembled townspeople, detailing in gruesome detail the atrocities committed during the era of slavery and during the Leclerc expedition, in order to sufficiently rile up the populace to the point that they were not only willing, but in some cases eager to carry out these massacres. For the better part of five months, this sort of dynamic played itself out again and again throughout the fledgling nation, as both soldiers and civilians killed mercilessly any white person they came across, be they men, women, or children. It is also worth noting that these killings were not indiscriminate. They were very methodical in nature. Some notable exceptions were made. White women who were married to black men, or who agreed to marry black men, were spared and offered Haitian citizenship, as well as those of Polish descent, as a reward for their assistance in the War of Independence. Dessalines declared that the Poles were the, quote, white Negroes of Europe, end quote. The massacres winded down by late April, 1804. It is difficult to say how many people died in this episode. Estimates ranged from between three and 5,000 killed. On April 28th, with the white population of Haiti having been almost entirely massacred, Dessalines made a bold proclamation, which reads, in part, quote, Finally, the hour of vengeance has struck, and the implacable enemies of the rights of man have received their punishment that their crimes deserved. I raised over their guilty heads my arm that has for too long been restrained. Yes, we have rendered unto these true cannibals war for war, crime for crime, and outrage for outrage. Yes, I have saved my country. I have avenged America. Tremble, tyrants, usurpers, scourgers of the new world. Our daggers are sharpened and ready for your torture. Let them come, these murderous cohorts. So long as there is a breath in my body, I shall keep this oath. Never will any colonist or European set foot on this island as a master or proprietor. This resolution will henceforth be the foundation of our constitution. End quote. Dessalines' dramatic declaration of April 28, 1804, is typically understood by historians to mark the end of the twelve-and-a-half-year-long struggle that was the Haitian Revolution. Unfortunately for the Haitian people, the world's first independent black republic was not fated to enjoy peace, 
prosperity, or freedom. As I've endeavored to emphasize throughout this series, the Haitian Revolution was an immensely destructive and bloody conflict. Estimates put the number of dead Haitians at around 200,000. The country's economic infrastructure lay devastated after a little over a decade of near-constant warfare. The leaders of post-independence Haiti would have quite the task before them. In May 1805, Dessalines promulgated a new constitution for Haiti. In this document, Dessalines reaffirmed his commitment to the formation of a radically new order. Perhaps the most radical change was the abolition of all racial distinctions, as the new constitution stated unequivocally that, quote, all Haitians shall henceforth only be known generically as blacks, end quote. This applied not only to the fledgling nation's majority black population, but also to the few whites who were allowed to remain, as well as people of mixed race descent. Provisions were also made that prevented any whites, that is to say, non-Haitians, from owning property, human or otherwise, on Haitian soil. Yet, despite these policies, Dessalines' regime was, in many respects, much the same as of that of his predecessor, Toussaint Louverture. This means that Dessalines took after many of Toussaint's more autocratic tendencies, as indicated by his title of governor for life, and later that of emperor. Like Toussaint, the political power base of Emperor Jacques I, as he now styled himself, was the military. Dessalines' relationship with the military was one of codependency. The men of the elite class of black officers that had emerged during the revolution relied on Dessalines to defend their hard-won power and privilege, while Dessalines depended on the military to shore up his regime. This was very much a practical relationship. Generals made up the ranks of Dessalines' government ministries, and he deployed the army frequently to enforce his strict labor codes. Diplomatically, Dessalines had endeavored to maintain the same careful balancing act that Toussaint had. He was acutely aware of the fledgling country's status as an international pariah. He had no doubts that it would not be long before some European power or other would attempt to seize the country. And while such a thing would not come to pass until the United States' occupation of Haiti in 1915, Dessalines worked hard to ensure that the nation could defend itself against foreign invasion. He poured what few resources the country had left into the construction of a series of fortifications, high in the mountains, that were to serve as redoubts against the potential invaders. On the other hand, Dessalines, much like Toussaint, sought to gain the recognition of those same foreign powers whom he was building up defenses against. The antipathy of the American and British public towards the project of Haitian independence meant that full diplomatic recognition from either of these countries was highly unlikely. However, economic overtures made by Dessalines to the British and American governments were surprisingly well received. There were still markets in these countries for Haitian goods, and trade with Britain and the United States provided the devastated country with a crucial economic lifeline, allowing Dessalines to trade agricultural goods for weapons and ammunition that he needed to prop up his regime. Of course, recommencing trade with foreign powers necessitated the restarting of the export-oriented plantation-based economy. This was something that was deeply unpopular with the common people. Just as he had done under Toussaint, Dessalines used the army to enforce discipline on the plantations. Many began to chafe under such brutal conditions, but there was no official way for their grievances to be addressed. Dessalines' government was, for all intents and purposes, a military dictatorship, with no instruments of democratic expression. Historian Laurent Dubois puts forward a number of theories as to the prevalence of authoritarianism in post-revolutionary Haiti. Whatever the case may be, however, the lack of democratic institutions in post-revolutionary Haiti left the people with only one recourse by which they felt they could effect change, armed rebellion. 
While Dessalines' waning popularity with the masses largely contributed to his downfall, it was ultimately elements within his own government that actually precipitated it. Alexandre Pétion, the mixed-race general who was Dessalines' rival-turned-ally, took advantage of the popular sentiment against the emperor to organize a series of rebellions across the country in autumn of 1806. Dessalines was touring the southern provinces of Haiti at the time the rebellion broke out, and he raced back to his capital of Port-au-Prince to organize a response. However, he was ambushed and killed near the town of Pont-Rouge, just north of the capital. The exact circumstances of the assassination of Jean-Jacques Dessalines are murky, and as a result, the event has been made the subject of myths. The most popular version of the story maintains that Dessalines was killed by his own officers, who shot him twice, stabbed him once, split open his head with a sword, and then stabbed him repeatedly in the chest with a dagger, all the while shouting triumphantly that they had killed the tyrant. The mob then horrifically dismembered the emperor's body, leaving pieces of it strewn all across the ground. It is then said that a woman named Dede Brazil took it upon herself to gather the scattered pieces of Dessalines' corpse. She placed them in a bag and buried them nearby, leaving only a simple wooden cross to mark the spot where the emperor lay. Jean-Jacques Dessalines left behind a legacy more muddled than that of his predecessor. Undoubtedly, he had accomplished a great diplomatic and military feat in leading the Haitian people to independence, and as the first head of state of an independent Haiti, he is duly honored to this day as an iconic figure of Haitian nationalism. For instance, the national anthem of Haiti, La Dessalienne, is named after him. However, in the decades immediately preceding his death, Dessalines was widely reviled for his autocratic form of governance. The conspirators who plotted Dessalines' assassination saw themselves as ushering in a new liberation. Immediately upon his death, they promised, among various other things, a, quote, wise constitution that will soon establish the rights and the duties of all, end quote. The creation of a new constitution would run into the other main issue of the day. Who was to fill the power vacuum that Dessalines left behind? There were two candidates for the role, Henri Christophe and Alexandre Pétion. Henri Christophe seemed to be the logical successor to Dessalines, considering his immense popularity with the army and his solid control over the northern third of the country. Pétion recognized Christophe's power and made it a point of ensuring his neutrality when he rebelled against Dessalines. As for Pétion himself, he was immensely popular with the western and southern sections of the country, where there was still a large population of free people of color. In the aftermath of Dessalines' assassination, representatives from across the country convened in Port-au-Prince to write a new constitution for Haiti. It was widely and tacitly understood that Christophe would assume the role of head of state in the post-Dessalines political order, and this is something that Pétion was actually okay with. However, Pétion and his supporters were determined to limit the powers of the executive branch so as to avoid a regression into autocracy. The constitution that resulted from these deliberations was heavily influenced by Pétion and company. It delegated most of the powers of state to the legislature, leaving the president as a largely powerless figurehead. Christophe obviously was none too pleased with this state of affairs. He led a march on Port-au-Prince, thus beginning another civil war. Christophe's forces were defeated by Pétion's loyalists on January 6th. The armies of Christophe and Pétion were more or less evenly matched, as neither side proved able to decisively defeat the other. A stalemate ensued as Christophe retained control over the northern third of the country, and Pétion clung on to power in the south and west. With both sides realizing their inability to change this less-than-ideal state of affairs, they both set up rival governments, with Christophe and his autocratic regime in the north, and Pétion's nominally Republican government in the South and West. 
I say nominally Republican because while Pétion made all sorts of assurances to the public that his rule would be different than that of the Dessalines, and he drew heavily from French Republican symbolism when creating his regime, at the same time he worked to consolidate political power as the president of the Republic of Haiti. Despite the fact that, per the new constitution, the president was supposed to share his powers with the legislature, Pétion wrested back control of most of these powers in the years following his inauguration. By 1811, the Senate of the Republic of Haiti consisted of only five men, all of whom were little more than puppets of Pétion. Economically, at least, Pétion's regime represented an improvement over those of Dessalines and Henri Christophe. Under Pétion, land was redistributed to a certain extent, and the old system of plantation labor was replaced by a sharecropping system, whereby cultivators would be allowed a greater degree of freedom in exchange for one-third of whatever they were able to produce in a given year. This system, while it was still far from ideal for most people, was a marked improvement over the old method of doing things. Pétion's regime relied on revenue generated by exports of coffee in order to sustain itself. But while Pétion took care to maintain cordial trading relations with the great powers, he also worked clandestinely to aid Latin American revolutionary movements, especially that of Simone Bolivar. Under Pétion, Haiti became somewhat of an outpost of liberty in a region dominated by colonial powers. Henri Christophe, to his credit, made even less of a pretense of republican government. Despite initially styling himself as president of the state of Haiti, Christophe's regime was more nakedly autocratic and repressive. Christophe did away with the last vestiges of republican government in the year 1811 when he, following Dessalines' example, crowned himself as king of Haiti. To be more precise, Henri Christophe's full slate of titles was as follows. Henri, by the grace of God and the constitutional law of the state, King of Haiti, Sovereign of Tortuga, Gonaive, and other adjacent islands, Destroyer of Tyranny, Regenerator and Benefactor of the Haitian Nation, Creator of her moral, political, and martial institutions, First Crowned Monarch of the New World, Defender of the Faith, Founder of the Royal Military Order of Saint Henri. This was not merely some superficial decree, however. Henri Christophe legitimately attempted to recreate feudalism in miniature in his Kingdom of Haiti. To this end, he created a landed hereditary nobility consisting of four princes, eight dukes, 22 counts, 37 barons, and 14 knights. Each of these new noblemen, the vast majority of whom came from the already elite and privileged class of military officers from which Christophe himself had originated, was each given a parcel of land, and was obligated to provide the state with a portion of the plantation's revenue. In this way, Christophe, or King Henri I, not only maintained, but greatly expanded the Haitian plantation economy. But while labor conditions were less than ideal for the average subject of King Henri, his economic policies did make a measure of sense, and indeed produced tangible results. Unlike in the Republic, where land was held by small-holding farmers, the kingdom was actually able to generate an even greater degree of revenue from agricultural exports. Of course, the average Haitians hardly saw any of these gains. Instead, the king poured this revenue into a number of ostentatious architectural projects, such as the Citadel La Ferrière and his royal residence, the Sans Souci Palace, the remnants of which are still remaining to this day. King Henri I was, quite understandably, rather unpopular with the masses, but to characterize Christophe as a simple despot intent on effectively re-enslaving the Haitian population would be somewhat unfair to him. To his credit, Christophe was possessed of a genuine desire to bring his vision of civilization to the fledgling nation. 
His creation of a high culture centered on his new nobility was just one example of this. Kristoff promulgated a law code, the Code Henri, very early on in his reign. It was a massive corpus of laws, nearly 800 pages in length, that was intended to codify the relationships between the various classes of people within his kingdom. Christophe was also an ardent believer in the importance of education. He believed that he could uplift the Haitian population through the creation of an ambitious education system that included primary, secondary, and tertiary educational institutions. In fact, a few of these institutions were some of the very few that survived after Christophe's reign. Said reign ended in 1820. It was in August of this year that Christophe suffered a debilitating stroke. Those who opposed his rule found an opportunity to overthrow him, so they went into active rebellion. While most of his nobles remained loyal to him, the rank and file of the military, along with most of the cultivators, tired of life under his repressive regime, did not. As it seemed the entire country was rising up against him, and with his health steadily deteriorating, Christophe saw no other way out. On October 8, 1820, King Henri I shot himself through the heart with a silver bullet. Meanwhile in the south, Alexandre Pétion had died of natural causes in 1818. He was replaced by his protégé, General Jean-Pierre Boyer. In the wake of Christophe's death, forces loyal to Boyer were able to invade and secure the north with relatively low effort, thereby reunifying Haiti for the first time since 1806. It is with Boyer's reunification of Haiti that I will end the narrative for this series, as we've technically gone a bit beyond the original scope of the Haitian Revolution itself. But now that we've technically concluded the narrative, I suppose a bit of reflection would be in order. The major question remains, what is the place of the Haitian Revolution in world history? How did it influence subsequent events? While this may seem to be a simple series of questions, they have still become the subject of great academic controversy. The objective historical fact of the matter is that the Haitian Revolution was, and remains to this day, the only completely successful slave revolt in recorded history. Some historians, while they are capable of appreciating this fact on its own, still remain of the opinion that the Haitian Revolution's effect on world history was ultimately negligible, as the nation that emerged from the revolution remained one that was impoverished, unstable, and vulnerable to the geopolitical machinations of the great powers. Haiti never fully recovered from the revolution and it has since been made the victim of neo-imperialist actions by France, Britain, and the United States, among others. Today, it remains the most impoverished country in the Americas, and one of the poorest in the entire world. Nor did the Haitian Revolution successfully inspire any subsequent uprisings that met with even a fraction of its success. The Haitian Revolution stands alone in world history as the sole example of its kind. Other historians, on the other hand, are quick to point out that the Haitian Revolution, while it cannot be considered to have had that great of a direct effect on world history, had a multitude of indirect effects that irrevocably altered the course of world history. As historian David Gagas writes, quote, Great power politics and world commodity markets, anti-slavery and slave resistance, migration movements and imaginative literature, attitudes towards race, decolonization, all these felt its impact, end quote. In fact, the ramifications of the Haitian Revolution are so far-reaching that it can be difficult to pin down specific examples. Perhaps I will elaborate on this in a future bonus episode or something of that nature, but for the time being, I think I will close out the episode with my own thoughts on the Haitian Revolution. Speaking for myself, whenever Haiti has made the headlines in my lifetime, it has always been due to some tragedy or other. 
the 2010 earthquake, for example, that laid waste to Port-au-Prince and left nearly a quarter of a million people dead. Or, more recently, the 2021 assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse. It would seem that the Haitian people just can't seem to catch a break, but one thing they undoubtedly have to be proud of is their remarkable history of their struggle for freedom. To me, the Haitian Revolution serves as a fascinating and inspiring story of atrocity, intrigue, heroism, and so much more. The sheer complexity of these events necessitated the series to be much longer than previous ones, but honestly, this is one of the most enjoyable scripts I've ever written for this podcast, and one of the most enjoyable podcasts that I've ever had to produce. What are your own thoughts on the Haitian Revolution? Do you feel like there's something that I missed or could have explained better? If so, please write to me via my email, historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. Also remember to check out this podcast's Patreon page and eBay store, also in the description, if you're interested in supporting the show. And that concludes our nine-part series on the Haitian Revolution. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks for the premiere of our next series, as we travel to a small village in medieval France in the midst of war with England, as a young girl named Joan of Arc sets out from her home to seek her destiny. Anyway, until then, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.